Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you'll hear from a panel of expert speakers. We'll allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star zero on your touchstone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would now like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Well, thank you so much, Norma, and I too would like to welcome everyone to today's program. And today's program is caregiving for your loved one with cancer. This couldn't be a more timely topic for us to be addressing today, a very important topic. And um, today's program is supported by Pharmacyclics LLC, an AbB company, and Janssen Biotech, Inc., administered by Janssen Scientific Affairs, LLC, and a grant from Genentech. And I really want to thank them for their support of this program. Now, we have on the program today over 336 participants. You come from all over the United States. You come from both rural, urban, and suburban areas. And you also, we also have some international participants on the call from Canada, Russia, Sweden, and the UK. So it's a bit of a global call as well. Um, and uh, also, um, we are just delighted to have so many of you on the call today. And actually, um, this is a collaborative effort between Cancer Care and many other cancer organizations. And really, because of your interest in the topic today, which is very timely for many of you, as well as um, all of our organizations helping to spread the word. We have so many of you on the call today. Now, we have wonderful speakers on our program today, and I want to begin by introducing our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Stuart Fleischman. Dr. Fleischman is former founding director, Cancer Support Services, Containment Cancer Centers of New York, author, researcher in oncology. And Dr. Fleischman is going to be addressing caregiving in the context of COVID-19, care coordination challenges, tips for taking your pills and treatment on schedule, stresses on family, partners, friends, and loved ones, including the challenges of social distancing. It's really now my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Fleischman. Oh, thank you, Dr. Messner, and a special thank you to all of you who are participating on this call. Caregiving for someone with cancer is challenging under most circumstances, especially caring for someone at home requires a yeoman's amount of time, energy, and stamina. And to participate in a call like this uh, shows that you're hungry for information. And it's good because there is a lot of help out there from people who have been through caregiving at home before. Um, we are, are recording this in April of uh, 2020. Anybody who listens to the uh, podcast afterwards will note that this is a time of a global health crisis with the um, effects of the COVID-19 virus that has affected all of our lives. And they have made caregiving for someone with cancer even more complicated than before. And we're going to try to give as many um, tips as possible to make this as, um, as easy for you as possible, though it's far from easy. So just a little bit about um, the, if for patients and families who have been had started treatment before the um, viral outbreak um, appeared and are continuing, um, you found, as you know, that, that the rules have abruptly changed, that uh, surgeries, uh, except the most necessary urgent ones, 
are have been canceled or post, uh, postponed until the viral outbreak is over. And uh, please, if you're in the process of trying to arrange surgery, uh, do it so on a case-by-case basis with your surgeon's office. Just keep in mind that your surgeon's time may actually be redeployed in a hospital to be caring for patients with COVID-19 virus. And many of their office staff may also are work, may be working in other parts of the hospital to help out the effort as well. So leave voicemail, um, send emails if that's how you communicate or if you communicate on a patient portal, but uh, be patient that because they're probably doing other jobs for now. But you'll find out um, when, the sur- when the surgery um, may even be scheduled once those schedules open up. If you're on chemotherapy, I we pretty much know that um, the routine has changed, uh, schedules may be different, and that would probably be except for patients who have certain types of leukemia or lymphoma or patients on clinical trials. Patients on clinical trials, by and large, will be on the same schedule of treatment. But again, your providers will know best and are able to work with you about that. Um, some of our patients are on oral chemotherapies at home, which provide, which brings up a whole bunch of other uh, caregiving issues, and we'll speak about that in a few minutes. Uh, some patients may be getting infusion at home by um, uh, high-tech home care companies that come in, again, bring up new issues uh, in the house, and some of you may actually still be going to an infusion uh, suite or an office to get a chemotherapy infusion, um, and that may have been changed. You may be going to a different place. You, uh, you and, and your uh, patient, if you're a caregiver, will also have to have uh, masks and maybe gloves and whatever per- personal protective equipment that the center wants you to have. For patients who are undergoing radiation that started beforehand, um, their, their radiation oncologist and the physicist may be able to uh, work out a system where you can come for fewer visits and get the same total amount of radiation. It's the, remember, it's the total amount of radiation that is important, not the number of visits you make to the center for treatment. So work with your providers about that. Um, it, is, um, it may be varying if patients are getting radiation at a hospital or in a private, uh, in an outpatient setting, a freestanding out radiation therapy center. So work with your providers about that. Caregiving um, is a lot harder than it used to be because of the same issues that our healthcare workers are facing. Um, social distancing or being six feet away from somebody when you're caregiving for someone with cancer is often impossible. And that's why the kinds of personal protective equipment may be a face covering, not necessarily a surgical mask, but a face covering and gloves and maybe some um, protective clothing and maybe an eye shield. Uh, These are things that are hard to come by these days. But again, speak with your providers and see what you could use from the things you have at home that may be able to substitute uh, for these things uh, to make everybody safe. Uh, social distancing is really hard when you're caregiving. Uh, most of us, when we are um, not feeling well, uh, in, enjoy and appreciate uh, a kind touch from somebody, um, somebody sitting with us and perhaps reading or um, enjoying some times that are not part of the caregiving routine, and that is a little 
different now, but again, based upon your situation, please ask specific questions to your uh, treatment team. So the care coordinating challenges that happen outside of the time of a, of a, a viral outbreak um, still hold. Um, being a caregiver means that you are a manager of, with a high level of uh, experience and skill, and sometimes we don't realize the skills and experience we have that we've used in other parts of our life that can be applied to caregiving. Uh, some of the things that we often um, uh, we often suggest in other times, and maybe even especially now, are having a written schedule, whether it's on paper or electronic is up to you, uh, but there are many, many things to keep track of. And I, I may leave some things out, but uh, the kinds of things that we stress keeping in order and uh, having a time and a date um, are uh, doctor visits, obviously, whether those are in person or online or virtual or on the phone, um, keeping track of when lab tests to do, where you have to go, if you need imaging studies, where you need to go for those. Some of those are being postponed. Some of them are being done if they are really important to be done at a certain time. Um, and coordinating with other providers. Um, most of us who are being treated at home or close to home not only have our cancer care teams, the surgical team, the medical oncology team, the radiation oncology team, and the supportive care team to help you get better, but also have our regular uh, primary care doctor and specialist that we've seen beforehand. And luckily in some uh, hospital systems, Everybody works in the same system. They have access to a unified chart. Information doesn't need to get passed back and forth uh, to people. It's all there for each provider to read and add new information to. If you're dealing with providers that work in different systems, some of that information needs to be emailed or faxed. And in some cases, a patient and a family, as unfair as that may seem, with everything else that you need to do, needs to carry copies from one provider to another um, or send them in some way. Um, keep in mind that in the, in, right in the uh, times of the viral outbreak, the, the number of the privacy and confidentiality rules about using email or using unsecured systems like Skype and FaceTime, I don't want to, there are many, many others, um, can be used by uh, patients, families, and their care teams. So keep in mind that that may be a possibility now. Um, if you're getting drugs from a pharmacy, um, and just about everybody who's being treated for cancer does, uh, they may be coming to you in a different way. They may be being ordered electronically and are delivered. They may be delivered from your own pharmacy in the neighborhood. They may come in the U.S. mail. They may come on United Postal Service. They may come by FedEx. Uh, they may be coming from a specialty pharmacy that is uh, owned by the pharmacy uh, chain that you use. They may be coming from a specialty pharmacy from your uh, pharmacy benefits manager. If you do have prescription coverage, often the pharmacy benefits manager, the people that um, coordinate the benefits um, and, and often authorize the prescriptions at your local pharmacy, they may be sending uh, drugs to you directly. So things may be coming in a different way. Um, we've uh, 
seeing the kinds of precautions people need to take. The packages won't go into that now. This keeps changing from time to time, but try to be as clean as possible when those deliveries come to the home. Um, taking medication at home is a huge part of a, what a caregiver needs to coordinate. And in usual times, we talk about either a paper schedule or an electronic schedule or having electronic reminders on an electronic calendar or a phone or calls from a relative or a friend whose job it is to call and remind people to take medicines. That works really, really well if you have a uh, somebody who's uh, ready, willing, and able to do that. Um, for caregivers who find that their patient is being treated far away from home, additional the additional layers of um, of tasks include transportation, having a place to live, staying with the person, the patient being in a new city. Sometimes um, you really need to rely on the treatment care team, even these days by telephone or online to be able to solve some of the, the logistics as far as where to go, what to do, how to get there, where to park, all those kinds of things that are harder to do when you're not in your own city. And yet some of us really still do need to travel to uh, another city um, either for a clinical trial or for a treatment that isn't, um, that isn't available close to home. So, um, I am going to stop there and um, turn this back to Dr. Messner, and we'll have time for questions. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Fleischman. That was really superb and so very comprehensive in terms of the issues that caregivers may be facing today and to, and also to give them uh, some helpful tips in terms of what to do. So thank you. And I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A as well. And our next speaker is Dr. Tamron Gray. Dr. Gray is Research Fellow, Psychosocial Oncology and Palliative Care, Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. She's also Cancer Outcomes Research and Education Program, Massachusetts General Hospital, Harvard Medical School. And Dr. Gray is going to define a definition of what a caregiver is and what research tells us about caregivers' well-being and also caregiving for an older adult, caregiving for a younger adult, couples, partners, siblings, and friends, and family, partners, and friend communication. It's really my great um, honor to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Gray. Thank you so much, Dr. Messner. I am delighted to be here today to present on the topic of caregiver well-being with a specific uh, emphasis on caregivers for older adults and caregiving for younger adults. Uh, briefly, my research focuses on developing interventions to support family caregivers of patients with serious illness including those with advanced cancer and high-risk hematologic malignancies. And as Dr. Mester mentioned, I will first define what a caregiver is. So caregivers are individuals who provide care that is typically uncompensated and usually occur in the home or outpatient setting. Caregiving often involves a significant amount of time and energy for months or years and requires the performance of tasks that may be physically, emotionally, socially or financially demanding. Caregivers can be either adult children, other family members, uh, spouses, partners, parents, friends, and neighbors. In the US today, there's currently over 40 million family caregivers, and they really do serve as a critical extension of the formal healthcare system. And one of the things that I always 
think about in terms of caregiving is it's kind of like receiving water from a from a water hose, from a fire hydrant. There is an enormous amount of energy to take information to take in, as well as adjust adjustments that need to be made for caregivers. They often don't necessarily volunteer for the role and are often unprepared or underprepared. And the current literature actually suggests that caregivers perceive skill, skills preparedness is associated with caregiver burden. Uh, some studies have found that higher caregiver burden is and lower caregiver quality of life was associated with a perceived pr preparedness that caregivers had about their role. So caregiving responsibilities can vary by diagnosis and they're responsible for a range of tasks. And when we think about tasks, we typically think about monitoring for treatment side effects, managing symptom burden for their loved ones, being involved in decision-making, administering medications, or even providing transportation and navigating complex healthcare systems. An emerging body of evidence suggests that caregivers derive both positive and negative effects of their role. For example, there's many benefits in related to caregiving, such as uh, acquiring acceptance and empathy, appreciation for their contributions, being closer to family or friends who are in need of their care. It also allows caregivers to have a, a positive self-view or reprioritization about what is really important. Uh, recent literature has also suggests the role of or the phenomenon of post-traumatic growth. This is when there's a positive change that arises from a major life event, such as a cancer diagnosis or taking on the role of caregiver. Although many individuals report positive experiences as caregivers, large numbers also report simultaneous unmet needs and substantial burdens. As I shared earlier, they're often underprepared for the many tasks needed to care for their loved ones. And often struggle quietly, uh, and often adverse consequences of caregiving may include symptoms of anger, depression, apathy, loneliness. Literature has found that those, those caregivers who are female, younger, have lower socioeconomic status, unemployed, cohabitate with their loved one experiencing cancer, those who have a low support system, and those who have low self-confidence are more likely to feel distressed in their role. And when we think about cancer caregivers in particular, they are a very unique caregiver population for several reasons. Not only do we know that, care, that cancer affects the quality of life of individuals with the diagnosis, but many family members and close friends are impacted. Uh, and when we think about in the context of cancer, Cancer care involves many different treatment modalities. There's often a lot of information overload. Uh, care is also being shifted to the outpatient setting. There's a lot of different interdisciplinary teams that the caregivers and patients have to uh, work with. Uh, and there's also different stages of illness, which may kind of cause fluidity in the, in the, comp in the caregiving role. So I'm gonna shift gears a little bit and talk about caregiver well-being. We know that in caregiving during cancer treatment, it's very labor intensive. And there's been a wide variety of issues and unmet needs reported by family caregivers, including psychosocial and emotional problems, physical health problems, and decreased quality of life. And for individuals who are employed, time spent providing care can definitely cause one to take time away from work or lead to lost wages and financial hardship. We know that this increased burden and responsibility uh, can have an impact in caregiver quality of life. 
But unfortunately, caregiver quality of life is going unnoticed in many, uh, in many uh, care settings. As many as 30% of caregivers experience some form of distress and unmet need. Uh, and, and interestingly, we also know that there's age differences that's been, been reported in terms of caregiver age. Older caregivers have better have been shown to have better psychosocial um, abilities, but worse physical adjustment, meaning that they often are able to cope well in their role, but they may experience some physical uh, impact in their role. So the demographic profile of caregivers is changing in the U.S. Baby boomers are shifting from being the caregiver to the care recipient. On average, 10,000 people turn 65 daily. So that means that there's a pivot in who really is becoming the caregiver. In 2010, there was a survey done that found that average age of caregivers was 53. In 2018, that same survey was conducted and found that the average caregiver age dropped to 47. This goes to show that caregivers are getting younger and younger. The average caregiver is about 47 years old, female, married, works outside of the home, and makes $35,000 annually. Moreover, nearly half of all caregivers, 48%, these caregivers of adults are between 18 and 49 years old. So we'll talk a little bit about that. So when we think about caregiving for an older adult, we know that as the population begins to age, the baby boomers are continuing to age rapidly. Uh, we also recognize that that means caregivers are also growing uh, in age as well. Older family caregivers are largely responsible for care of next of kin, but it also impacts their own physical and mental well-being. However, evidence is insufficient regarding the health situation of older caregivers. I mean, and this causes healthcare professionals to really take a look at how can we really partner with caregivers, particularly those who are older, to have the best outcome for patients. Caregiving for younger adults. This is a very different experience for those who are younger. Uh, caregiving for them is often an unexpected role. But we also know that with care shifting, that there's gonna be more and more young people taking on this role. By age 40, a third of Americans already consider themselves to be caregivers, and an additional third of 40-year-olds are expected to become caregivers in the next five years. For younger caregivers, they're having to balance work, finances, childcare, uh, along with a lot of other different uh, uh, aspects of their lives. And we also know that millennials in particular, those who are between 22 and 39 years of age right now, make up one in four of all caregivers in the United States. So caregivers also impacts couples, partners, siblings, and friends in a couple of different ways. So we know that with partners, for those who are younger patients, they could, they're often parenting. And when you're also uh, diagnosed with cancer, that poses another challenge for their co-parenting partners. There's been little evidence that a little attention given to the experiences of young uh, partners who are also parents. When we look at older uh, couples, we can see that there's, you know, as people grow older, time is more finite. So these caregivers often have a different focus in mind when they're caring for their loved ones. And then finally, when we think about communication with regard to family, partners, and friends, family caregivers in oncology serve as a liaison for patients and caregivers. They often are the hub of information and relaying a lot of information to family or friends. They're also seeking information 
uh, on behalf of their loved ones. So it becomes critically important that caregivers have liter health literacy skills to really understand the knowledge that they're being that they're receiving from the care team. But we also want to think about ways in which to support them in their uh, in the, at their risk of loneliness and isolation in their roles. Uh, this is a major experience that caregivers have, and it's important to really understand how can we help them to uh, have the support, social support that they need uh, to uh, benefit them and their loved ones. So I'll go ahead and stop there, but I'm happy to discuss further in the Q&A portion. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Gray. That was really excellent and very outstanding and covered a lot of different areas, different ages, different issues, and um, I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A, so thank you very much. Um, thank you. And um, our next speaker is uh, Ms. Georgie Kusak. Ms. Kusak is an, is an oncology nurse. She's Director of Education and Patient Safety, Office of the Clinical Director, National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute, Adjunct Nurse Leader, Nursing Research and Translational Science, Clinical Center, National Institutes of Health. And Ms. Kusak is going to be addressing greater use of technology to cope with holidays, birthdays, and special occasions due to social distancing social distancing and managing family, friends, partners, and traditions, and practical tips for managing caregivers' stress, strategies for self-care. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Ms. Kusak. Thank you, Dr. Mesner, for the opportunity to be on the call today. I'd also like to take this opportunity to welcome all the participants who are on the call. It's my pleasure to participate in this conference call. It's very near and dear to my heart as a nurse for 36 years, I've worked with a lot of patients and a lot of caregivers. So hopefully I'll be able to impart some knowledge um, that you can take away from the participating in this conference. So I'm gonna to discuss today social distancing and how to manage family, friends, partners, and traditions. As one of the strategies for managing, I'm also going to discuss the use of technology to be able to cope with holidays, birthdays, special occasions, especially in this time of social distancing. And then we'll talk a little bit about some of the practical tips for managing caregiver stress and some of the strategies that you can use for self-care. So again, it's important that when we're thinking about social distancing for your loved one um, with regards to your family and friends, as Dr. Fleischman had mentioned earlier, when we are uh, working with patients that do have cancer and we're trying to maintain social distancing, it is a little bit difficult for that. And so if you are still in direct contact with your loved one, and you want to reduce their risk of exposure as much as possible, you do want to adapt some of those practices of um, social distancing. So um, <clears throat> again, if you can have masks and gloves on hand that can help you to um, limit the spread of germs to them, especially the masks, you can use the homemade masks. Um, the Surgeon General actually um, on the CDC website um, has an example of how to make a mask yourself out of using your own cloth and those are masks that can be uh, washed and different things like that so you could do that or just get some regular masks. You don't need the N95 masks that everybody's talking about but just some kind of protection. Again, the the purpose of the mask is for you to protect them and for them to protect you. So if you're going to protect them, just wearing that mask will help with that. Um, some of the other things, cleaning any objects that may be coming from outside of the home, such as deliveries. Um, the CDC also recommends sanitizing high-touch surfaces and common areas with some um, disinfecting wipes or household cleaners or even deleted bleach. If you use like a third a cup of bleach per gallon of water, uh, that will help also with that. 
And you can also consult your healthcare team if they have any specific advice with, with doing that also. When limiting your physical contact, if you don't feel comfortable visiting a loved one or maybe you may um, have sickness yourself or even have allergies, you're not sure whether you're sick or not, and you just want to limit that potential exposure, you can really maintain contact by calling or emailing or texting or video chatting. And we'll talk a little bit more about that in terms of the different means in just a second. But just, again, remembering that any type of social interaction with them is important. So whether you can be there in person or whether you will call them or send them a card or a letter, all of those forms of communication are going to be helpful for them. You want to be able to um, you know, if you can't play a role with being there yourself, you may want to continue, you know, think about being on televisits if they're having televisits or scheduling um, different activities that must be done for them, different things like that. You can also run errands for them. And so there's a wide variety of different things you can do if you're not actually there physically. When we talk about some of the emotional impacts of social distances, and again, how do we do reduce the effects of social distancing? Remember, <clears throat> excuse me, as the coronavirus continues to spread and we do have to practice social distances, um, that there is some social isolation. So you want to try to limit the emotional impact of that. We are social creatures. We do like, you know, a hug or a handshake every once in a while. And so it's a little bit harder for us these days when we can't practice some of the routine um, cultural things that sometimes we do with that. And so sometimes you can get some feelings of loneliness or depression, either as a caregiver or as a family, as a patient for that. And so we just want to be able to think about that for people. Um, one of the things that we, uh, as we talk about social distancing and isolation, there's um, a lot of information in the literature um, even looking at um, social isolation in the elderly populations. Again, as you get older and you don't have as many friends around and things like that, there's a lot of articles that are out there. And they do start to talk about things like social media. And so using a um, technology to be able to cope with some of the social isolation and then also to be able to cope with specific holidays and different things like that. Um, staying in touch can really make a big difference in people that are feeling isolated. So, again, as we said, if you call or text a loved one who you can't see in person, for those that don't have access to the Internet, even sending a card or sending a letter to them is also a helpful way to be able to let them know that you're just thinking about them. For people who have um, a smartphone or people that have access to a webcam, you can do video, ca video calls and there are different applications like Skype or Zoom or FaceTime, um, also Google Hangouts. I mean, there's a wide variety of different applications are, that are out there that you can potentially use for that. And depending on how many individuals you may want to communicate with at the particular time, that will help you to select the type of application. This is where I usually pull in. I have four children, and this is where I usually pull my children into these discussions because they're all millennials and know how to work all the technology, so I always, always uh, access them to do these things. We get a call this weekend. My husband's from Ireland, and we had a Zoom session this weekend with all of his cousins in Ireland and across the U.S., so we had probably about, about 40 people on the phone call. 
And it was nice because, you know what, it is nice just to be able to see people's faces um, if you can't be with them in person. I think it's a nice way to, to be able to connect with your family and friends, especially during the holidays or on birthdays or different special occasions for that. In addition, there's also things like games that can be played online or by smartphone application. So, again, if you're working um, with a um, – with if you're working as a caregiver – for yourself or even for the um for our actual patients just being able to play a game with them sometimes um might be able to help that if they're you know if they're feeling up to it and things it just it's a distractor and it helps people to be able to um take their mind off of some of the you know kind of everyday things that they have to do and kind of uh, just take that time to be able to focus on other things we do tell you in this time of social isolation that you do need to maintain a schedule. So, again, long periods of time and time, it's it's good to, you know, sometimes people are sleeping in more or taking more naps and things like that, which are okay, but you do want to try to stay on somewhat of a schedule because I think it, it helps you to just be able to have some kind of predictability in your day. But, you know, saying that, you also want to be able to break up your day somewhat and being able to do a variety of activities so it doesn't get monotonous for you. Um, you are still able to exercise, and whether you're exercising indoors or taking a walk, you're able to, you know, take walks outside and things like that. You just have to maintain that social distance, that six feet of social distance between people. So, again, the coronavirus is done by air droplets, and so at this point, this is what we're thinking. So you just want to make sure you're adhering to the social distancing with, with that. Um, and and you really want to try to remain centered. So as we talk about caregiver stress, and there's a wide variety of applications out there. There's a wide variety of tools that are out there, and you can go to the American Cancer Society website or the NCI website or Cancer Care's website, and they have some distress um, checklists that you can kind of, you know, take for yourself to see, okay, am I having a lot of stress, and if I am, what can I do about it? So that will help you to, first off, be able to identify it as Dr. Gray mentioned, the research does show that stress of the caregiving does take a toll on your um, emotional health. And so you want to make sure that if you are feeling stressed, first off, that you can recognize that you are feeling stressed out and then put some activities into place for that. Some of the physical signs that people may be under stress, a caregiver, are things like tension and headaches, sleep problems, weight changes. Um, Long-term stress can affect your immune system and it can suppress your immune system. So you may tend to get more colds or different things like that. It does also increase your chance of developing some chronic heart problems such as heart disease and high blood pressure. Um, so again, you, you want to just make sure that you recognize that and are able to start to deal with that. If you are feeling stressed, you want to be able to do a wide variety of things. First thing is you want to educate yourself. If you're feeling stressed about your loved one and whether you're able to take care of them or how you're able to take care of them, you want to learn as much as you can about their about your loved one's cancer, its treatment, and all the resources that may be available to help reduce the stress for that. You want to ask for help with different medical tests. So, again, it's, you can feel very unprepared to be able to provide the care. As as Dr. Gray said, you're kind of sometimes thrust into this situation and you don't know how to handle it. So you want to be able to ask questions. You want to ask your medical team questions. You also want to, you know, get your family members and 
friends to help you to be able to help um, you know with your patients. Get support by talking to the nurses, the doctors, the pharmacists, um, cancer care, and um, and um, Dr. Messner will talk about this in a second, but cancer care has a wide variety of support systems in place to be able to help family members who may be feeling stressed. And so you want to take advantage of those supports that are out there. Um, asking family members and friends to pitch in. Again, this is very difficult sometimes for caregivers, and I've seen it over and over again um, in the years that I've been a nurse and that, you know, you, you feel like you want to be the person that or, or need to be the person that is helping them. Please remember to ask family members and caregivers. Everybody wants to help. They just don't always know how to help. So having people, you know, help you with appointments or creating lists of activities that you write down and maybe divvying those out. Um, having people bring, you know, um, make meals for the family, different things like that. Again, people do want to help. They just don't always know how. So that can help. For yourself, again, you want to be able to exercise. You want to be able to get plenty of rest because the rest will help you with that. There's a variety of tools that you can use to be able to help yourself with, um, you know, kind of de-stressing in the evenings. You can do things such as um, breathing exercises um, where, and there's a wide variety of apps out there, um, applications like the Calm app or the Breathe app, which will help you to be able to do breathing exercises. There is meditation that you can do, um, which, um, you know, we have mindfulness meditation and insight meditation, different types of meditation. You can also do guided imagery, which combines the deep breathing and meditation and as you practice the deep breathing, you can imagine like a peaceful scene or something like that from a memory to be able to help you to focus a little bit more on that. We also have a, a wide variety of tools, and you can look up some of these on YouTube, even things like music therapy, um, where, you know, whether you sing or you dance or you listen to promote some self-expression, you can do that. We also have um, drumming therapy which I took up drumming last year, which is actually, I love it, um, where you just, um, you know, you play the drums. You don't have to be good at the drums. You just play different things on the drums. And they have online, uh, you know, you can um, coordinate with other people doing it online. And then the other thing is what they call vibration therapy. And that is a type of therapy where you use um, um just kind of different, sorry, this is a dog in the background. Some of those things you just use to help you to be able to um, use the therapy. And so, again, the National Cancer Institute, Cancer Care, and the American Cancer Society all have different um, types of these therapies that you can look into. And as I said, you can also use YouTube. So I'm going to end this part with just using, I actually have a little gong thing here, and I'm just going to play that for you just for a second so that you can hear um, this is kind of a very relaxing therapy. Oh, that was that was lovely. Oh, Ms. Kusak, that was just a wonderful presentation. Um, and I have to say um, also, um, we all welcome your dog on this program, uh, Barking, because it reminds us that we all, many people on this call, may have pets, and so I'm going to say something about them um, in my next in my presentation. But I want to thank you so much for your really outstanding presentation. Thank you. I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A as well. Um, so I just wanted to say a few words about long-distance caregiving. 
um, their important role in this time of social distancing. I'm Carolyn Messner. I am an oncology social worker and director of education and training at Cancer Care. And long-distance caregivers are now taking on a very important role. Um, and a long-distance caregiver can be across the United States in a whole different part of the country. They could be another in another country altogether, and they also could be in the same city, but they could be it could take them an hour or two to get to where you live, if that makes sense to all of you. Sometimes it does take time to get from where they are to where you are. And so it includes many different um many different people are long distance caregivers. And to some extent, um with the the technology that we have today, they've taken on a whole new role. So it means that a long distance caregiver can be very involved. Um, they can be involved with, let's say you have a visit with your physician, and if, you're, if, a, if a, person, a person living with cancer is comfortable having someone on, with them during that call, and there can't be a person physically there, they can be there um, by phone or uh, by Zoom or by any different method that they and their healthcare team determine would allow that person to be there as an extra set of ears. It can be very, very helpful. They also can be providing all sorts of support to you, again, by calling you regularly, by helping you to remember to take your medication on time, um, to really be a sounding board for you, to be someone who's there for you, to organize perhaps care in your community that you need, um, and to actually do many different things for you. So I think that the long-distance caregivers are taking on a whole different role, perhaps in this era that we're living in now, than ever, ever before. And of course, we do live in a very mobile society, which means that often um, people do, um, in a, there was a time when families lived very much close together, and some still do, of course, but many um, actually seem to go wherever there is um, an opportunity for a position or in terms of their relationships or many different reasons that people move to different parts of the of, of where they were originally where their family where their uh, care where their person with cancer needs to have the care but that doesn't diminish their ability to provide extraordinary care to each of you now i also want to say um a, a, a lot about our cancer care hopeline right now because it's taken on a whole different meaning as well in this era um, we have an 800 number, uh, 1-800-813-4673, and I have to say it's pretty much ringing off the hook. People are calling um, for tremendous needs that everyone is experiencing right now, and our oncology social workers are really addressing some of those needs um, with many of the different services we have. So the services include just telephone or online counseling with one person, we also have a financial and practical assistance. And I'm very happy that actually this Cusack um, dog did bark because we do have what we call a PAW program. And that is something to recognize that people often do have pets at home and often they don't have someone to walk the dog or to even get the dog food for them or those kinds of, all the things that are needed. And so we do have what we call a PAW program. And when you call our Hope Line, if any of you on this call have a pet, and need help with its care, you can call that line for assistance as well. And you also can call for yourself, of course, um, or your family members. And so we do offer, again, the um, chance to talk to an oncology social worker. And you also, for those people um, all over the world, you can email us on our website, www.cancercare.org. And you can then also um, receive all this information, uh, you, can, you can email your question, and then our staff will respond to you and help you to find a resource in your community. 
Um, we also offer um, online support groups and telephone support groups, which people find very helpful because most people live very, very complex lives and often are not able, even when we didn't have social distancing, to come in for an appointment but to be able to do something on the phone, just like we're doing today, an education workshop on the phone. It's just so much more accessible for everybody right now and probably will continue to be to some extent using the phone, using um, social media, any way that we can get information out to people to support them. Um, we also have a Cancer Care for Kids program that really assists with children um, in families where there is cancer and help um, the adults to kind of communicate with them and help them to understand um, that experience as well. So there are many different programs we have, and I hope that um, and they're free. So we hope that you'll take advantage of them. And and also I must say that you will, at the end of this program, probably within about a day or two, you'll be getting an evaluation form. And it's not just an evaluation form because we also include many resources that we mentioned during the program today. So Ms. Cusack mentioned some resources, and each of our speakers have mentioned resources, and we'll be sure that you get them so that you actually can realize that there's a huge array of groups out there to really assist you. That's really uh, important to know that. And your healthcare team, of course, they're there also. But there are other groups that can provide you with support, and it's just important to know about them. So, um, And now... Um, we do have time for questions, and I'm going to actually um, ask Norma to bring all of our speakers on board, and we're set to take your questions and, and delighted to, so we look forward to your questions now. So, Norma? Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star, then one, on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered or you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. Our first question comes from Stephanie Kay. Your line is open. Well, thank you so much. I want to thank Cancer Care for helping me so much as being supportive to me for going through with my survival for breast cancer. Thank you so much. I'm a 13-year breast cancer survivor and also a nurse for over 20, 30 years, a psych nurse and social worker. Mike, I have two questions. The first question is I have issues with I am very good being a caregiver to my husband, but it's interesting that he was a caregiver to me going through cancer, and I'm trying to do it back with him. But the problem is I'm finding that men are so different than women. I like to know the differences how men caregiver and women caregivers because I find that men do not accept that you caregiver to them, and that's difficult. And also, I don't see support groups as much for caregivers in my local hospitals in the cancer centers. I'd like to find out more. Thank you so much, Carolyn. Thank you. Well, thank you very much, Stephanie, for those two questions. The, the second, the one about support groups, we do have a lot of support groups at Cancer Care for caregivers just like yourself, and so um, for caregivers of um, of, of partners, of spouses, of, of family members, um, for older adults, younger adults. So definitely um, do take advantage of those. And for this first question you asked about the difference in caregiving in terms of men and women and what that experience is like, um, Dr. Gray, do you want to do you want to address that one to start with? Anyway, we'll probably open up to everybody, but that's a, it's an interesting question and. It is. Uh, thank you so much for your question. And, you know, one of the things that I found in my research, I actually conducted some research recently looking at male caregivers of uh, women with breast cancer who are younger than 40. And we found that the coping is very different in terms of um, these individuals. Uh, they're less 
in general, every caregiver is different. Their experience is going to be different, and a lot of it is based on the health of the loved one with cancer. But we've also found that in terms of support networks and reporting of mental health and emotional health, uh, these men were less likely to report um, that they were experiencing some of this. But we've also found that in which, uh, in terms of working, they actually find pride in having um, working and providing a care for the loved one who is a female uh, with um, with cancer. Um, in terms of women, the majority of caregivers are female, but that is shifting, particularly towards the younger demographic where you have about half of the caregivers to be um, male. Uh, so it's, it's something that is very understudied right now. More work needs to be done on it, but in terms of their coping and their emotional health, Right now, we're finding that there are some differences in the early literature. Excellent. Thank you. Thanks, um, thanks Dr. Ray. Dr. Fleischman, do you want to add anything? So just one thing. I think, again, it's not study information, but just an observation that it seems that there's a generational divide uh, in patients mm -hmm. and families that I've seen over the years where the younger men are um, more able to give as well as receive care. And I think that may be different that, than members of older generations. Just, just a, a perception. I don't know if that's borne out in fact. And Ms. Kusak? Yeah, and I think there's, I think, again, I think part of it's a gender difference thing too. And what were your normal functions before the caregiver mm -hmm. got sick? And so, you know, if you are if you are somebody who normally is doing most of the household type things versus somebody doing more of the bills and different things like that, it depends on the activities that you're having to take over. And I think your comfort level with those activities, you know, plays a big part in that. And so, I think there are big differences in that that you just have to account for. And I I agree sometimes. I look at again. I look at my kids when I think about um, being able to caregive and stuff. And everybody's different, but I think it really does have to do with um, what your previous activities were before you took over those responsibilities, and then how how well do you adapt to those activities over time? That's an excellent point. Yes, it's true. The activities matter a great deal. What they were and. Um also, there is the issue of independ of a sense of you know independence um, mm -hmm. um, in terms of someone uh, perhaps um, you know asking for help sometimes is is a, is a sense of saying I need I need your help and if someone hasn't had experience with that that's a whole other issue of just um, um, a really uh, of, of, of a sense of loss of independence and. For those on the call who are listening, also as people living with cancer, it actually so that's a normal feeling for people to have in terms of that's very normal. However, the other flip side of it is that um, actually having someone to help could actually strengthen your independence and to do able to do things. So it's um, so to think of it as both sides, but it's hard to in the moment when you're living in it. So very hard. Good question, Stephanie. Thank you. Um, I have a question in front of our online participants for Dr. Gray. What advice can you provide to a parent caregiving for young adults with cancer? Hmm. Great question. Um, so I, I didn't share this earlier, but my background is in pediatric nursing, particularly with bone marrow transplant patients. Um, and, you know, in terms of advice for parents uh, caregiving for young adults, it's important to maintain a balance between independence and autonomy as well as um, 
the caregiving that you provide. Recognizing that there's a transition period that's going to be happening even from the initial stage of diagnosis to a few months later in terms of the patient feeling more and more comfortable in understanding the care that they're receiving, feeling more comfortable in asking questions. Uh, it's a, it is a, a shift for the parents um, in terms of wanting to relinquish some of that opportunity for the, the young adult to have the, those opportunities to ask questions. But also it's important to have a sense of normality uh, in the process, normalcy in the process in terms of if the young adult wants to have relationships or wants an opp opportunity to uh, build social connections or a sense of purpose, that's going to look different than someone who's not necessarily who doesn't necessarily have cancer, but it's important to uh, give them the opportunity to ask questions, be involved in care, recognizing there's developmental milestones that they're also hitting at the same time. Um, and I will say also that the, uh, you may find that there's different care teams that will evolve over the years as the individual, as the patient moves from young adult, childhood, young adult to adult uh, care. So there's more work that needs to be done in terms of care transitions as the patient uh, gets older. That's excellent. Gosh, I was lucky to have you on the call. This is terrific. <laughs> Anyone else want to comment on that as well? No. I'll just add that I think that I always go with the with the aspect of, you know, that with young adults, I think as they're transitioning into adulthood, just remembering that that frontal lobe doesn't develop until you're closer to the age of 25. And so there's many, many things that are going to come into play there and stuff. And, you know, just trying to help them to understand sometimes um, when they may want to do something that, you know, you don't necessarily think they should be done, but be tolerant of them and just know that they're at a different place in their life right now than you are. You have a lot more wisdom than they do at this point. And so it's, it's a matter of kind of really reaching that balance with them. Excellent. Thank you. Um, and we have another question from one of our online uh, participants. Um, I've heard that Cancer Care has support groups for caregivers. When and where can I join for one near me? Is this anonymous? So the um, all of our support groups are either on the telephone or online. So they basically are as near to you as your telephone or are your um, your your um, computer to some extent, and um, you basically can just go to the Cancer Care website um, at www.cancercare.org, and you can go ahead and register for either a telephone or online support group, and um, or you can call our 800 number as well. Um, so that's an excellent question, and um, so that basically, and if anyone is looking for one in their community, we also do have resources that are available in your community. However, with social distancing now, I think most communities are now doing them and telephone um, as well, but if you prefer to have one right from your own town that might be doing it, um, we also can link you to those resources as well, so that's important. And I think your healthcare team probably could as well do that, so just that you have many resources to get those services. Um, and then um, I have another question. Um, so this is an excellent question. I'm going to ask Dr. Fleischman if you could start with this one. As a caregiver, how can I manage my own stress and depression while taking care of a loved one with cancer? I guess I'll just leave it that one to begin with. <laughs> That's a that's a tough one. Um, the I guess the best thing to do is to realize that all of us have have limits to what we can do, and it's okay to ask for help. 
if, if any help is available, calling in favors may be really important for you to do so you can take some time um, and rest and think and try to um, grapple with what your own emotions so that the rest of the time you can be as uh, effective a caregiver as possible. Also, um, treatment, uh, whether it's uh, some uh, counseling or some medication these days is also quite different than it was in times before the viral outbreak, but we expect that to change in the coming months. But accessing treatment either online, on telephone, um, or locally would be very important too. Excellent. Thank you. Um, excellent. And um, anyone else want to add to that? This is Dr. Gray. I'd like to just make one comment um, that it's important for caregivers not to neglect their own health care appointments during the time of caregiving. Uh, sometimes it may be it may seem difficult to maintain certain uh, clinical appointments for yourself and your own primary care provider, but those are important um, for your own health as well as for the patient outcomes. And I think it's important to just be creative in how you maintain your stress level because there will be good days and there will be bad days or tougher days. But it's important to really see is there a way to have a telehealth component with a mental health expert or primary care provider so you don't have to leave your loved one at the house, um, and also understanding the resources that are available in the clinic setting related to caregiver support and respite. And do you want to, I want to say more about the telehealth business? They're really quite extraordinary um, for people, and um, I think that um, uh, um, it's really a chance to talk with your um, healthcare provider on a telephone, but it's amazing to have this conversation um, in from your home with your physician. Um, and does anyone want to comment more about that, just that whole um, experience for people or what it's like and how helpful it is? Uh, I'll, sure, I'll, I'll start off. Um, telehealth is extraordinarily helpful under for many circumstances. Um, the I, I guess it, it's been slow to pick up in the United States because for um, very few of our insurance companies have a telehealth visit been reimbursed. Now in the health prices that we're facing, the telehealth visits are automatically reimbursed. We don't know if that will change in the future. It seems, it, it can seem kind of remote. Um, it's hard for uh, the, the uh, practitioner to actually test certain things like blood pressure and pulse and listen to a heart or, a, or lungs on the phone but I understand that there are some um, uh, some devices that are being tested, uh, probably first in other countries, that will allow these sorts of things to happen through a telehealth connection. Uh, but it, whether you're connecting by voice alone or by voice and video, it can be very effective, uh, especially if you've seen the person before in, in person. I want to add to that. It's, it's an amazing. It's, it's something that they may actually begin to um, build upon. I think, as Dr. Fleischman said, we may have more of this um, after this pandemic as well, because it has been a very effective way for people to to have a conversation 
with um, their pro- with their provider, with their healthcare provider, without having to travel somewhere, without particularly for those of you who live in rural areas or even in urban areas, just to go somewhere, you know, it's just, and also to have this face-to-face communication, which actually is often for a half hour, and so, but it's a full half hour of talking, which in most visits is a combination of that. It's not really all talking. So, do you want to, someone else wanted to comment? Yes. And I would say, this is Georgie, I would say, you know, we've been doing telephone triage for years and years, and, and, you know, the way that we evaluated patients over the phone by that was, you can usually tell if somebody's short of breath over the phone, but it's nice to be able to have that visual of actually seeing somebody, and if you want to evaluate, you know, a rash or something, or if you want to really talk to somebody and really visualize them versus just seeing it. I also think that there's, you know, hospitals are increasing, increasingly, um, gaining the availability of being able to make this a very private interaction with the family. And so there are applications that you can use for that to make sure that it's, you know, because I think people get a little hesitant sometimes about doing that type of conferencing because they're afraid that everybody's going to be, you know, it's going to be accessible to everybody, which it's not. And there's very specific things as we do electronic medical records, as we do telehealth and those kinds of things, different things that are being put in in place through hospitals that protect HIPAA, protect your, you know, health insurance portability and and the ability of that. So I think that, again, as the technology grows and we use it more and more often, I think it's only going to get better and enhance our ability to be able to use that as another method. It's not always going to replace the method of going in and getting what you need done, but it will help with that to be able to maintain that contact, especially during times of social distancing and, and probably even after that. Um, thank you. And there's one last late-breaking question, which I'm going to um, I'll ask Dr. Fleischman if you can begin with this one. I'm a caregiver to my husband in our apartment in New York City where COVID is prevalent. I am very cautious about using PPE when I leave our apartment and am attempting to never leave my home to avoid exposure. But it never occurred to me that I need to wear a mask around my husband or avoid sitting or sleeping near him. Do I need to distance from him? So, um, Dr. Fleischman, do you want to address that? Uh, that that's, that's a, a tough one. Um, because of the idea that uh, we could actually carry and spread the virus before we even feel sick, uh, for some, for uh, let's say a couple or a caregiver and a patient who um, can't don't know that they haven't been exposed to someone else. Uh, inadvertently, not not on purpose, but inadvertently, having a mask and gloves and hand washing and all those things would be very, very important. As uh, weeks go by and uh, a caregiver is absolutely certain they haven't been exposed to um, any any viral particles, either through the air, uh, through droplets, as it's called, or on surfaces with deliver- from deliveries and things like that. Uh, I, I guess uh, with uh, with your pr- provider's advice, some of that may be relaxed. Um, but the idea that we may be able to actually uh, pick up the virus from packages that come or things like that—it's—it's it's remote, but it's known and it's possible. And for that reason, um, really have to keep things up. So if you, uh, if you have questions in particular, speak with the provider. The additional factors are uh, temperature. Humidity. Luckily, it's not 
too hot or not too cold now. We know that New York City apartments are often overheated. Uh, um, and uh, the, the condition, the illness that the patient, him or herself, is, be, is being treated for also may make a difference. So speak to your providers directly to get ind an individual assessment of when, what you need to do and if it can be relaxed when. Excellent question, and and actually it does. That's an excellent question, and of course, we that's that recommendation of talking to your healthcare provider. But it does give you some guidelines. Does anyone else, Ms. Kosek, do you want to add anything to that as well? No, I think I think I'm right on target with um with what Dr. Fleischman's saying with that. I think that all of those are important concepts. Again, as we go further along, as he said, we're doing this on April 14th, and you know that's what we know right now about the COVID virus and terms of transmission and different things like that. Things may change in time, but I think they're getting a better idea of what the transmission is and, and those kinds of things. And again, if you are social distancing and you're continuing to practice that, there is a period of time, you know, that you are not exposed anymore at, at that time, you know, as long as you're practicing the social distancing and protecting yourself with that. And also, I would suggest you definitely talk to your healthcare provider and also um, that you, um, if you're concerned about this, and it really is in your mind a lot, and your healthcare provider will help you with this and talk with you about it, and you can even have a telehealth visit with them. You can ask to schedule one because most of them are quite available to do that. Um, and particularly in New York City, they are. I'm doing this a great deal. Um, and perhaps with, you know, with your husband present so you can both talk about this um, and, but you also may wish to get support for yourself as a caregiver, and you can contact Cancer Care as well, and or any of the other organizations, the American Cancer Society, many organizations that are all out there really trying to support all of you who are really, um, I think, as Ms. Kusek said, where this is April 14th, and this is what we know at this point, but it does change. And so um, your health care provider is quite up to date with everything. Well, this has been an extraordinary call. I have to say... Um, of all the caregiving programs we've ever given, actually, I have to say this has been the most extraordinary one. And um, I want to thank all of our speakers. They've just been phenomenal. I also wish to thank all of you as participants. I mean, you all asked such really great questions. I mean, really, um, really top, top questions that really uh, allowed us to expand further on the topic of today. Um, and um, in concluding, I don't want anyone of you to leave this call feeling that you're alone. I know that you're all going to feel alone sometimes. However, um, we want you to know that it's normal to feel alone. Everyone does at times. However, we also want you to know that you're part now of a lot of support organizations and your healthcare team. And, and most importantly, if you asked a question today and, and got an answer, you still want to run it past your healthcare team. If you didn't ask a question, didn't get to ask one, and still have a question, you can go to your healthcare team with it. Or if you heard something and it makes you think about something, ask your healthcare team. And also, um, you know, if you have still have medical questions, we know many of you like to go to credible websites to get information. You can visit the Cancer Care website, the National Cancer Institute website, the National Cancer National Institute of Health. Um, the CDC, and we'll send you all that information, places that really have up-to-date information that you can look at, but then also run it past your healthcare team. Um, and for those of you who wish to pursue services from Cancer Care, whether it be counseling or a support group or financial assistance or help from our PAW program for assistance with um, 
with any of you who have pets and need help with the, their care as well. Um, and also, um, we do have various publications we send out to people. So do contact us, and um, we're here for you as well. Um, and again, I want to thank you all for your participation today, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop. You may now disconnect. Everyone have a great day.